In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to see everyone out on this rainy Sunday morning. We continue our Old Testament readings by continuing our story with Solomon. After Solomon's conversation with God last week, over the next few chapters we see examples of Solomon's wisdom, including the famous story of the two mothers who come before him with the baby, and they ask him to decide whose baby it is, and he, of course, says, well, cut the child in half, and one of them says, that's fair, and the other one says, nope, give it to her instead. And that's how we find out who the mother of the child is. We then get chapters talking about how his court was run, who his advisors were, all that kind of pertinent information. But starting in chapter 5, he starts to build the temple of God. And for two and three-quarter chapters, we get a lot of detail about what he did, who he worked with to get it done, how the temple would be outfitted. And then we get about a quarter of a chapter in chapter 7 that talks about how he builds his own palace. It takes about seven years for them to build an outfit and do everything they need to do to build the temple. And so here we are, seven or eight years after God God and Solomon had talked. And Solomon's finally ready to, to bring the temple into fruition. Verses 2 through 5, which we kind of skip over this morning, talk about the procession up the hill from where the tabernacle had been set up in the city. In verses 12 through 21, Solomon retells the story of how God's people got up there through this time, focusing on the temple and the tabernacle and David, his father. And then Solomon starts to pray. There shall never fail you a successor before me to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your children look to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Therefore, O God of Israel, let your words be confirmed, which you promised to your servant, my father David. He prays God will continue to fulfill his promises that he made to David. And then he asks a question, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I built. It's a deeply philosophical question. We'll come back to it. Solomon prays that those who come to the temple, having sinned, will see forgiveness. Then he prays a series of prayers, most of which we skip over this morning. The first prayer is for an individual who sins. And then there's three prayers for when the nation sins and God shows his displeasure in various ways. And then we get to our reading this morning when it's someone from, not from God's family who comes to the temple to pray. When someone comes from afar, that God will hear it and answer it. And after that, Solomon prays two prayers for the army. And in his closing prayer, he prays that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Thank God for his mercy on those who are far off when they first heard of God. How dear to me is your dwelling, O Lord of hosts. My soul has a desire and longing for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh rejoice in the living God. Now, I want to spend one more minute with Solomon this morning. Next week we're not going to read this, but in the beginning of chapter 9, God comes back to Solomon. And he says, listen, because of your faithfulness, because of what you've done, I've consecrated the temple. And I'm going to answer your prayer. But know this, that if your descendants sin, they'll still always be a descendant on the throne. But if your descendants sin, they will no longer dwell in the land. 
Behold our defender, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. This morning we read about that anointed one. He says, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Now I know this is our fourth Sunday in a row, working through this passage in John. But remember, it's only been one day since Jesus fed the 5,000. In their minds, it's all very clear that this man may be the next Moses. And since he fed the 5,000 that day, he also crossed the, crossed the Sea of Galilee and walked on the water for a few minutes. Just a couple of minor, minor things. And now Jesus is speaking to the crowd for 30 minutes, an hour, we really don't know. And that whole time, they've been going back and forth over the last several verses about who Jesus was and what he was going to give them. They wanted Moses. They wanted Moses to come back down and feed them again and lead them. And Jesus is saying, I'm not Moses. I'm the man that God sent from heaven. But why was Jesus not Moses? Think about the story of Exodus. Skip over the exciting parts. Moses versus Pharaoh. Moses versus the court magicians. The plagues. The pillars of fire and smoke. The parting of the Red Sea. All that stuff you would stay up for when the Ten Commandments were on television when you were a kid. Skip through that stuff and think about the next 40 years. In Exodus 15, 15 starts with this, this passage. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and become my salvation. He is my God and I will exalt him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. Three days later, that same group was complaining that they were being led through the desert to die because they can't find water immediately. And then God leads them to an oasis. And six weeks after that, they start complaining. Why did we leave the land of Egypt? There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But Moses, you brought us out to the desert to starve, all of us to death. And this is when God sent the manna daily. A few days after that, they're complaining about water again. Why? Because they couldn't trust in the promise that God would sustain them. The God that delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. They didn't believe he could sustain them when he led them. And after hearing the whole discourse from Jesus, many of those who considered themselves disciples said, This is difficult. Who can accept it? The next verse. Jesus, aware that his disciples were complaining. It's that word again, complaining. Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man descending to where he was before? They were complaining already like their forefathers, and it had only been a day since he fed them physically. We do that sometimes. But with Jesus' ascension taking place after his death and resurrection, would that make believing easier, or would it make it harder? Think about their forefathers, all of those miracles. Three days later, God, where's the water? A few weeks later, God, where's the food? In the moment, they still were not sure that he came from heaven. And because of that, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went with him. Some of you may have been subjected to the writings of Soren Kierkegaard in your education at some point. He spends a considerable amount of time thinking about the scandal and offensiveness of the love of God. What do I mean by that? Kierkegaard was convinced that if we understood how unworthy we were of God's presence and of God's love, 
we'd be scandalized by the amount of time and amount of effort that God spent lavishing that love upon us. He contended there comes a point in our lives where we have to make a choice. Do we believe or are we offended? Did the God who created the universe also become a man? A man who died an unclean death, was buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven? Who chooses to do these things? We're confronted by God with the scandal of his amazing self-giving love. And we face a tension that will either lead us to offense or belief. And in this tension, we have the beautiful possibility of faith. And with all this being said, Jesus turns to the twelve and says, Do you wish to go away? And we have Peter's answer. It's always Peter, it seems, that gives the answer. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Jesus wasn't surprised. John lets us know he knew from the beginning who believed, who didn't believe, and who would betray him. Solomon quit worshiping at the high places when God chased him down. He built the temple and eloquently spoke about God's love and his forgiveness. And here we see the reality that God's love and forgiveness is personified in Jesus. Solomon asked, can God dwell in the earth? God answers Solomon definitively in the incarnation when God becomes man. And it's that same love that God shows to us today. Paul this morning says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Remember, we're not putting on the armor of God to fight with our brothers and sisters here on earth. Not we don't pick up the Bible in the morning so we can beat about the head those that disagree with us. We're putting on the armor of God so that we can stand firm in the Lord and fight the devil. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for the saints. Pray also for me so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains. Last week, Paul told the Ephesians they should be full of the Spirit. Today, they are to pray in the Spirit constantly. And Paul knows that his main job is not to fight, not to explain to everyone why they're wrong. His job is to be an ambassador for Christ in all he does. Even when he is in change, he is still an ambassador for Christ's love. May we follow that example and continue to be Christ's ambassadors here on earth. May we continue to show God's love in all that we do. Amen.